0: Welcome to First Reading, the Old Testament lectionary podcast to give you a leg up as you work to understand and preach the Hebrew Bible. I'm Tim McNinch, a PhD candidate in Hebrew Bible at Emory University.
1: And I'm Dr. Rachel Wren, an ordained Lutheran pastor and an assistant professor of biblical studies at Trinity Lutheran Seminary at Capitol University. Rosie is off this week, but she'll be with us next time. The first reading for Sunday, November 21st is 2 Samuel 23, verses 1 through 7. Tim is up again in back-to-back weeks, thank you sir for taking that on, (laughs) and he's got insights for uh, this interesting text. This Sunday is the very last week in the liturgical year, known either as Christ the King Sunday or Reign of Christ Sunday. Next week starts Advent, and we have a great series of episodes planned for that too. But for this week, what do you have to bring us into the new year, Tim?
0: Well, uh, hopefully something helpful. Uh, You might think it's an odd week to preach from the Old Testament reading, uh, being uh, Christ the King Sunday and all, but the reading takes us back to another momentous transition, the end of King David's reign. Mm. The poem that forms this week's reading is presented as his quote-unquote last words, and so it's kind of interesting to reflect on this on the last week of the liturgical year.
1: Okay. All right. I see where you're going with this. So, all right, start us off. You said this is a poem. What's a poem doing in the narrative book of 2 Samuel?
0: Ah, well spotted. thank you. Yes, there are a few poems sprinkled into the historical narratives of the Bible. And it's worth noting from an exegetical point of view that these are indeed sprinkled in. That is, these poems were probably added to the narrative after the fact sometimes long after the stories were codified, as seems the case with this one. So poems like this often function to help frame the larger collections of stories and to sum up big ideas.
1: Mm, I love that idea, the idea of a poem or a song being used to draw everything together. It reminds me of like Hannah's song at the beginning of First Samuel, which you mentioned last week.
0: Exactly, or kind of like the hymns sometimes do in our church services.
1: Yeah, very nice. Okay, so what's this poem framing or, or summing up here at the end of Second Samuel and David's life?
0: Well, that's the key question. And uh, you might notice something quite odd about all this if you keep reading after the end of the poem. These aren't actually David's last words. <laughs> So weird. I know. I mean, David has lots more to say and do before he finally kicks the bucket. So that only adds to our notion that this poem was placed here not to continue the narrative flow of the story, but to make a special point at this juncture near the end of David's reign, but not quite at the end of his life.
1: Mm, So it's his last words without being his last words, kind Mm -hmm, of. Okay. All right. So unpack it for us.
0: Well, I'll do my best. Uh, first of all, in addition to being called David's last words, this poem is also described as an oracle. In Hebrew, the word is neum, ne'um david, the oracle of David, which is a word that's usually reserved for prophetic utterances. Yeah. So this is set up not just as David's own reflections, but as a revelation of the divine word, in a way, God's last word on David's rule. Yeah. And it also awards David the status of a prophet, kind of like an honorary doctorate here near the end of his life. (laughs) Anyway, that word from God is a message about good, godly rulership. Hmm. Those who rule with justice, with reverence toward God, are like, it says, the sunshine on a clear morning, gleaming off the (laughs) dewdrops. Just leadership is refreshing, life-giving, wholesome.
1: Yeah, it's like, I've got sunshine <laughs> on a cloudy
0: day. Do-do-do, do-do-do.
1: Yeah, there you go. Yeah, there yeah. you go.
0: And David has a kind of pat on the back for himself in verse 5. He asks rhetorically, isn't my rule just like that in my household, my dynasty? <laughs> Hasn't God made my dynasty secure, eternal, prosperous?
1: Yeah, I mean, if we're going to look at this David of the book, I don't know if we would call it completely just, but this is his last (laughs) siren song. So let's let him have it.
0: Absolutely. And then the poem ends by contrasting this kind of positive outlook with those who rule poorly. They're described with images of thorns and untouchability and consuming fire.
1: Interesting contrasting images. Huh. So what do you make of this?
0: Well, I think you already have touched on where I'm going with it. For me, the curious thing is the ambiguity in that rhetorical question that David asks. Uh. Is not my house like this with God? Well, I think David means us to answer, yeah, of course, you're great. But like you were hinting, in the wider context of the David story, there are some Mm. serious flaws in David's leadership.
1: Yeah, rape of Bathsheba, murder of Uriah, not supporting his daughter when she's raped
0: by his son. And the weird census story that follows this poem and is yeah. also painted as a huge mistake on David's part.
1: Huh.
0: And as far as David's uh, household, his dynasty, it sure had lots of ungodliness and failure. Yeah. And ultimately, the line of David fell. Huh. And since this poem was put here, in all likelihood, long after the collapse of the Judahite monarchy, I can't help but wonder if the editor who put it here, right before that census debacle, by the way, might have wanted readers to pick up on the ambiguity of that question. Is not Hmm. my household like this with God? Well, maybe yes, maybe no.
1: Yeah, it's kind of like thick with irony almost, isn't it?
0: Yeah, yeah. So to sum up, this is a poem that celebrates godly, just leadership, but that also raises the need for real self-reflection and not a simple self-pat on the back for leaders.
1: That's really nice. It's complex. It's kind of meta in the way it understands not only this moment in the biblical text, but also the way the biblical text works as a whole. Uh, Really interesting Do you have a sense of how preachers could work this into a a sermon or any pitfalls that preachers should avoid? I mean, besides the obvious, like, don't just lift up David as the amazing king that everybody should be modeled after, right?
0: (laughs) Right, right. Well, there is another pitfall that I want to highlight. The NRSV translates verse six, but the godless are like thorns that are thrown away. And I think preachers should be cautious with that. It can sound like uh, like we believers are awesome, but atheists and agnostics and secular folks out there—they're like prickly thorns who are going to be burnt to a crisp. Nah, <laughs> that's not what this is saying. Right. <laughs> and the word "godless" there is not a great choice of a translation, in my opinion. Mm. The Hebrew word behind this is kind of a tricky one. It's belial, and it's not a very common word. Mm. It doesn't mean godless in any straightforward etymological way. Um, it's the same word that Hannah uses when Eli accuses her of drunkenness. Don't consider me a bat al, a worthless good for nothing. Huh. It's also used by the narrator to, uh, to describe Eli's scoundrel sons. Mm. And in the chapter just before our reading today, which is another poem, in uh, 22 5, that same word comes up in a poetic description of being surrounded by danger. And the word there is in parallel with mavit, death, and with sheol, the place of the dead. Mm. So I think in our poem here in chapter 23, the word's better translated something like rebels or scoundrels. Basically, it's describing rulers who don't rule with justice, but only to achieve their own benefit. Hmm. And it's definitely not referring to atheists or secular people.
1: Nice. That's a really important pitfall. Nice. Nicely done.
0: Thank you. And as far as a preaching angle, I'd come at it from two directions. First, there's the positive theological message here. Success, that is good governance and justice, is here all God's doing. For David, God exalted him, verse 1, God anointed him, verse 1, favored him, verse 1, put words on his tongue, verse 2, and will continue to prosper his house, verse 5. As quote-unquote last words, they're an encouragement to the next generation to continue walking in the light of God's leadership. And here at the turn of the liturgical year, I I think that encouragement is well met, right?
1: Nice. This poem
0: can be an encouragement for our congregations to pursue justice and to follow God's leadership, knowing that whatever good comes from it is God's own gift to us and through Mm. us to our communities. Mm. I think that's a good message.
1: Yeah. Yeah, absolutely.
0: At the same time, there's that other direction. The ambiguity in David's, is not my house like this with God? (laughs) Well, David, maybe yes and maybe no. In the wider context of the David story, there's some critique of whether he actually lived up to the ideal of just leadership that's celebrated in this poem. Yeah. In that context, the poem sits here as a prompt for reflection, hmm. that maybe it's not best to end the year or one's life with a simple pat on one's own back. Hmm. Here at the turn of the year, this text can also be a prompt for our own self-reflection and for communal discernment. How is God calling us to grow in the next year? Mm. So those are two ways into the text, or or maybe you could weave them both together.
1: I love that idea. I, I so the, the the idea that came up to me for kind of a, a sermon, fun little exercise. And this wouldn't work for every context, but you could have folks pull out their phones or a notepad or something and just say, write a ten line poem on what you know you think God is calling us to in this next year. Just give them mm. like three minutes to say we're going to be quiet and write for three minutes and then just have them write and kind of Uh, begin that reflection time as you head into advent and head into the new year
0: i think that could be really interesting to do and you know the sermons aren't the only places where we get to interact with biblical texts like this this would also be really relevant for you know say uh, um, a church uh, session or council or consistory or however it's labeled the leadership structure in your church Um, yeah this is a this could be a great prompt for a kind of uh uh, careful self-reflection and, and listening to God for what's yeah what's going to happen in the new year and new generation.
1: I wonder what it would be like with confirmation students even, too.
0: Hmm, interesting.
1: Fun. Well, folks, I'd love to hear, we'd love to hear if you do this and if you uh, if it prompts some self-reflection in your community that you'd be willing to share. Well, all sorts of different ways this text could be used as a sermon, as a devotion, as a confirmation exercise. We'd love to hear about any of them. If you'd like to communicate with us, you can find us on Facebook or at our website, firstreadingpodcast.com. If you found good stuff here and want to listen more, you can get past episodes on our website, or you can subscribe to never miss a future episode. We'd like to give a big thanks to Trinity Lutheran Seminary at Capitol University for a grant that helps us do what we do. Until next time, I'm Rachel Wren.
0: And I'm Tim McNinch. Have a great week.